This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. With just two hospitals in Utah that can provide this service and no locations in the surrounding Mountain West, cardiothoracic transplant nursing is a career worth investigating. What makes this role so rewarding, so fulfilling, so stressful? We'll talk with a 20-year nurse expert coming up. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. Today, we will learn about heart failure, heart transplants, and various technologies that support these topics. In addition, we discuss what it takes to help patients, their families, nursing teams, and other healthcare workers with training, education, and protocols to follow at all levels. So overall, this episode focuses on understanding the passion and the why of being a heart transplant nurse. You definitely want to listen to the whole interview. Let's get started. Our next guest is Erin Davis. Erin Davis is a BYU nursing alumni, and she has been working with the heart in a number of different capacities, and we're excited to talk to her today. Erin, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, Erin, a lot of people, um, especially members of our church, they think about um, heart surgery, heart transplants, and they think of our prophet president, um, President Nelson, and some of the work that he does. Maybe you can tell us what a nurse might potentially do in the heart world. I mean, I know it's a very broad world. So tell us kind of what your role is um, and, and what, what you do for patients that either need heart transplants or um, medical devices that can help them kind of get by on the heart they do have. What, what do you do? Uh, that's a great question. So I actually fell in love with the heart during nursing school um, at BYU when I, in about 2001, 2002. Um, and I had the opportunity to do clinicals at the University of Utah Hospital in the cardiac floor. Um, I thought I was going to be a bedside nurse because that's where you know most nursing students think they're going to be. Um, I soon realized very quickly that there's a lot more to it. Um, one of the opportunities that was growing is becoming an artificial heart coordinator or LVAD coordinator. And these are machines we put in in the patient's body, a big surgery, and we place the device right next to their heart, and it takes over the pumping function of their heart so they can live longer. Um, some of these patients go on to heart transplant, and some actually live with the devices for the rest of their lives. And so I had the opportunity to become the heart tra- or artificial heart coordinator at the University of Utah in 2006, and um, really grew my career from there. Um, leaving bedside, I was able to learn the administrative side uh, writing policies, protocols, guidelines, procedures. We got, I got to see patients throughout their continuum of care. They became my patient until they died. Um, wow. I got to be both a, both a critical care nurse as well as a hospice nurse all, all at the same time. So really, really rewarding and definitely more open doors. Yeah. Well, that sounds like an amazing experience. Maybe just briefly talk about how you fell in love with the heart, as you put it. How did, how did you end up deciding that this is like a, a niche that you kind of want to fill and have? Well, you know, they, they talk about, you know, 
the types of body parts and what, and they relate it to a car. I just thought the heart was cool because without the heart, um, nothing gets blood in the entire body. I thought that was pretty neat. I, it was simple to understand. The brain was not so simple for me in nursing school. Um, but I loved, I loved the parts of the heart that you could control. I also loved the, as Dr. Nelson or President Nelson says, you know, it's, it, there's so much more analogies to use with the heart and it, it equals love. I, I watched patients where we did surgery on and we did everything right and yet they still didn't survive. I watched patients that, that we did everything wrong or all these bad things happened to them and they actually had the most grit and drive to survive. And I think I really relate that back to the heart. So that was kind of why I fell in love with the heart. That's awesome. What a What a great line of work that you're in. And I'm sure especially you know, from an administrative perspective, you get to see a, a long spectrum of care that a lot of nurses and other medical professionals don't get to see. Maybe talk a little bit about that. What specifically does a transplant program manager do? What is your role or what does your typical day look like? Yeah, um, it was very interesting. I, I debated on going back to school like many nurses do. Do I go back for a nurse practitioner? Do I go into an MSN? I, um, because I kind of fell into this world, I ended up developing a lot of relationships, not just in my own hospital, but across the nation and internationally in this niche world of heart transplant and LVAD or artificial hearts. So as a coordinator, I would care for patients on the inside of the hospital, outside of the hospital, I'd go to the OR, I'd travel and do outreach outside of Utah to try to bring patients to us, which I really loved because I love serving the rural population. Um, and then when I, as I grew out of the coordinator role and built the program and a bunch of people, I became more of an administrator. Um, I like this because it's a little more set hours. I didn't have to do call anymore and be on call 24 seven. Um, but I come into the office. I, you know, an absentee manager is not a good manager. So I make sure even during COVID, I was here for my people. Um, lots of meetings. I just got done coordinating a, a team meeting where we're trying to discuss how to grow and how we're going to draw lanes for each nurse and assistant to drive in so that they can better be more and caring for patients. So that was really, you know, very rewarding to do that. I do a lot of analytics. So I take a lot of the data, our, our patient outcomes, our length of stays, our bad events that happen, adverse events, falls, bleeds, um, infections, and we do a lot of data analytics to see if we need to make improvements in our program. So uh, it's very administrative heavy. I have to say I'm really grateful for my computer skills and my typing skills <laughs> because uh, I didn't think I'd need those as a nurse as much. But um, documentation is everything. And I'm, I'm grateful that I, I'm okay on a computer because that's very heavy and administrative role. But the best part of it is being able to work with other nurses and aides and social workers and MAs and physicians and nurse practitioners all at the same time and be able to connect all of the disciplinaries in a multidisciplinary process. Wow. That sounds like a lot of diverse work then. I'm sure that every day is not not the same. Do you ever find yourself missing kind of like more bedside patient care type interactions then? Or do you kind of enjoy this more um, macro level, you know, policy setting uh, role and influence that you have? I that is a really hard question, a very good one though, because that's the biggest question I ask my people that are thinking of joining my team. Will they miss the direct patient care? I would say I missed it for a little bit. Um, I made sure that I got that experience. The most important thing a nurse can do is do bedside, at least whether it's ICU, whether it's the floor, whether it's the nursing home, truly take care of the patient and in, in the day-to-day things they need from a nursing perspective. 
What I like now is instead of influencing just my assignment of patients, I now influence an entire discipline of patients. Every heart failure patient that enters my institution here, I have a little bit of uh, influence on it to write the protocols that are going to drive the care, to oversee and make sure they're safe and make sure that how we're going to do things, the processes we put in place are going to protect them and have give them the best opportunity for outcomes. We do a ton of education. I love the education piece. And, you know, I didn't need to go back to nursing school to become an official educator. I, I do happen to be in an MBA program right now for the financial side, but but I can still be an educator and an influencer overall in all of healthcare um, just with my RN from BYU. Wow. That's a, that's a really good answer. I think that's a little bit unique too, where, I mean, I think a lot of We've interviewed quite a few individuals who have had experiences similar to yours who are taking on more and more administrative roles as um, their scope and, and their responsibilities grow. Uh, but I think you're kind of unique because you're admitting that, you know, you don't so much really miss that because you kind of feel like you have almost like a higher calling. Is that an accurate yeah. summation of what yeah. I'm hearing from you? Yeah, that's, that's a great way to think about it. You know, they, they talk about what your calling in life is going to be. I knew, I knew when I went to college, I was going to be a nurse. I just didn't know what kind. And bedside is wonderful. And some nurses are going to be bedside forever. But a lot of people get burned out and they think they have to leave the medical career. And what I would tell nurses is even if you do a clinical that you don't love, or maybe you're like, oh, I don't want to be here forever. Or maybe I, maybe I picked the wrong major. I would say pause and look at all the other options you have. Um, something unique is I also did research for a while, and I love research. And I love being able on cutting edge of things that we were going to uh, work with the IRBs and learn how to get enroll people in research studies. And then I even had an opportunity to go to industry. And what that means in nursing is you actually leave the hospital side and you go work for a company that's very profit-driven. But I got to influence more than just Utah. And I got to go around to other uh, institutions around the country and the world and teach them how to care for these type of patients and teach them how to get reimbursed and how, to, how do you argue with insurance companies to make sure your patients get care. And so my favorite thing about that was giving access to patients who otherwise didn't get access to care. In influencing insurance policy at the governmental level. It was very, uh, a lot of work and a totally different pathway of nursing. But what made, what made it good, what made me unique is I, I had the I had already taken care of these patients at the bedside. I knew what they went through. I knew how to do, what they went through at discharge to take that then and say, okay, we we don't do, we do a disservice to our patients if we can't give them better access to this therapy in a more efficient and cost-effective manner. So being able to take all of those experiences and then wrap it back around, I did come back to the hospital and I'm glad I did, but I ended up taking a lot of other experiences that I used my nursing RN, BSN RN to get into. And it really, the career pathways are just endless in nursing. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good piece of timely advice. Nurse Burnout rates for nurses are is at an all-time high in the United States and around the world, for that matter. And I think you know the idea of taking some time to evaluate other options is really is really valuable. Do you think you got burnt out a little bit? I know you worked bedside for a little bit after you graduated from BYU. Did you find yourself getting burnt out from that, or? Um, I when I worked bedside, it was um, right before the recession, and. 
So I feel like I was burnt out at bedside. I didn't feel like it wasn't well supported. Uh, we didn't get paid a whole lot <laughs> when I started. But I, when I became a coordinator and started caring for these really sick, very um, niche patients, uh, for two years, I was solo. I was on call 24-7, 365 days a year for two years by myself. And that was really, really hard. And the only reason was is we just, at the time, the recession hit. We couldn't hire. There were hiring freezes. There was We didn't get raises for years. There was some discouragement there, no doubt. I think I went back to my why, though. You should always know what your why. Why did you go into nursing? And mine was to provide good care to patients. So I'm able to, and I think all of us are able to do hard things for a short amount of time knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I would say, you know, I worked very, very hard in those two years to prove, to prove to the higher-ups, to the administrative of the hospital, my criticality, my need, the reason they needed to give me more support for my patients. And then I delivered. Once I got more support, we made the program bigger. So, yes, there's burnout everywhere, no matter what job you go into. But in medical, especially even this COVID era, I, I kind of liken it to the recession a little bit, where there's not a lot of hiring. And if there is hiring, there's not a lot of extra raises. And, and then you also deal with the, the whole aspect of the the view of the politics and all of this. It, it can get very frustrating and, and, and demoralizing. But I think you have to know your why. Why did you do this in the first place? What was your why? Yeah, and I'm sure that can help guide you as you're trying to make potential career decisions and, and shifts to avoid burnout in yourself, but also to be able to keep up and, and do something that's going to be fulfilling. I think that's great advice. What are, what are some of the other benefits of taking on kind of a more administrative role? You mentioned there's like a nine to five schedule that, you know, you're, you're not necessarily on call at the time. What other benefits or just different work environments do you experience in a more administrative setting? Well, I, I don't wear scrubs anymore. So if you're not a big fan of scrubs, it's a good job to um, I try to stay out of scrubs. It's actually kind of nice. Um, it, it is a more flexible. I, I have two kids. I actually had both my kids while I worked here at the university full time. Um, so I've been able to flex around my kids' schedules, um, uh, being able to work through uh, you know, sick kids. I had, oh, I had a kid. I had to go home suddenly in the middle of the day and my job was secure. I could still work remote a little bit, which was nice as administrator. Um, there, what I like the most is being, like I said, I may not influence direct patient care, but I hire the nurses that do. And so what I have really focused on is being a better boss and being a better mentor and being a better coach. And actually I hate the word boss. I don't even use it. I don't use employees. I don't use the word, um, subordinates or whatever staff. I don't like the word staff. I actually use the word team members and really creating a team environment. I do a lot of external and um, internal uh, self-coaching. So I go to leadership classes to learn how to be a better leader. Um, I am in the midst of hiring a bunch of people right now as we're growing and really finding the right team member for my team is the most crucial point. And I love that opportunity. I love to watch somebody's eyes light up when they find out that transplant, heart failure, VADs, I even do lung transplant, that those things trigger and they go, oh my gosh, that sounds so exciting. And then to build that nurse up to be so confident that our nurses at our level, they are respected as high as a physician level. When we walk in, the physicians respect us just as equals. When we civil, we have a voice as equals. And that is only built because that is the culture we've built. So I love being able as a as an administrator to build good culture for nurses to thrive in. Wow. Is that ever stressful to you? You're trying to hire people that are gonna be responsible for the health and well being and 
sometimes even the life of an individual who's either getting a heart transplant, you know, they're getting a medical device to help their failing heart. Um, I mean, how do you even go about deciding who to, who, how do you decide who should be able to make decisions for that type of patient? Well, the first thing I do is I look for those who have experience. Um, I, I don't actually look at degrees. Um, sometimes I'll look at where they went to school just because I know what their clinicals might be like, but I want to see somebody who's actually experienced stuff. Um, I want to see somebody that's done their work at bedside or taking care of worked in an ICU or taking care of nursing home patients. I want to see somebody that actually loves patients. Once that's in place, then I look for the, the personality and the fit. Are they ready to go the next level? Are they ready to walk, walk, are they ready to walk away from bedside and um, do outpatient and, and ER visits and work with outside physicians to coordinate transfers? And even to the point, are they ready to help patients uh, work through the palliative issues and say, okay, it's time, I'm ready to go to hospice? Those are the type of nurses, they have to have a, a dedication about them that they want to see the patient in the entirety of their stay and not triage in an ER fashion. And, and I'll, I'll be very frank, I was I thought I'd go ER and life flight. That was my ultimate goal. I was going to be an ER nurse. My capstone was ER. Um, but I, my, my thought process has changed. I, I still thrive on the excitement of that. But it's hard when you treat and ship your patient. You don't get to see what happens. You don't get to see the end result. Being a coordinator, whether it's in heart or kidney or liver or brain or stroke, whatever coordination you become in this type of level of nursing, uh, is to see the patient as a whole and their families and their caregivers and the social work aspect. So really, really love the bigger picture. Yeah. No, that's great. And I think that's, that's really good advice too for potential nursing students that might want to get into a role like that and advice of characteristics they can try to look for in themselves. Um, I do want to pivot slightly towards um, what some of your employees do. You're kind of more on the administrative level. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are, you know, these, are, I shouldn't say employees, right? Your team members. <laughs> team members. <laughs> your yeah, team, team members. members. <laughs> what, I mean, they probably, there's probably a diversity of them, I'm assuming, right? Because a heart transplant is a very mm-hmm. different operation than someone who's getting an LVAD. So what, mm-hmm. um, you know, are, what, what, does, what, what does their role look like? Um, so most of them, um, during COVID, we tried to work a little remote, but most of them pretty much had to come into the hospital still. Um, we have an office that's adjacent to our hospital, really just down, down the, um, the hospital corridor. Um, they come in, they can wear scrubs or they can wear regular clothes, just so you know. Um, they round on patients on the inside of the hospital. They go see the patients that are in the bedside or the ICUs. Um, heart transplant coordinators are the ones uh, following 300 plus patients after transplant for the rest of their lives. Some patients live a couple years, some patients live 26 years. So it just depends on how far out they are. They're making phone calls to them. They're following up on labs that they're getting on outside facilities. They're asking them about their symptoms. They're taking triage calls. Um, They're also the ones that are getting patients ready to be presented for transplant. They're working through all of the testing that's required for transplant, making sure everyone has their notes in, and then they the my nurses are the ones that present to the team, to the surgeons, to the cardiologists of the what the patient looks like, all of their medical conditions, their cath lab, their echo, their labs, their GI, 
<clears throat> and then at the table once a week, or if it's urgent through email, we all discuss the patient and, and put out our concerns. We are working with financial, social work, dietary, pharmacy to make sure if we give a patient a heart, the gift of a heart, which is only 3,000 done every year in the United States, and there's 50,000 people that need them, that if we give one of those 3,000 patients one of these hearts, that they're going to take care of it. So it's not an entitlement program. Our nurses have to be very thorough that we have really done our due diligence that the patient's that are kind of be re receiving this gift that they can take care of them. And then our nurses do a ton of education. They have to teach the patient how to care for their heart. They have to teach the patient how to take their meds and what the, each medication is going to be for. Um, so a lot of education. And um, then they're the ones that ultimately list the patient for transplant in the national UNOS uh, UNO database. Um, they're the ones that get to call the patient in when a heart becomes available. Um, in the LVAD world, if they're taking care of the machines, um, I pretty much focus on some ICU nurses. I'm, I'm, I'm unique. I wasn't a main ICU nurse before I became a VAD coordinator, LVAD coordinator, but um, we, we need a really intense ICU background to do LVADs. Um, they, the patients can call you with their pump stopped, and you have to triage as if you were a first responder over the phone, and then you have to rush into the ER with them or up to ICU and help care for them in those settings. Um, my, my VAD coordinators, LVAD coordinators, go to the, to the OR with the surgery, and they run the pump while the patient's in surgery. Wow. So really, it's fun. It's exciting in that regard. And then they still have to do all the outside stuff as well. <laughs> So um, very, very big uh, range of their day-to-day. -day. Not one day looks the same. Yeah, clearly. There's, there's a lot to break down there. Um, maybe we can start with particularly the individuals who are trying to coordinate, the individuals on your team who are trying to coordinate heart transplants. I mean, how, mm -hmm. you know, as an outsider, someone that doesn't know very much about this process, you know, if I have CHF, congestive heart failure, and, you know, I know or my physician tells me that I'm going to need a heart, I mean, how do I go about you know, navigating that process? I mean, you made just so I'm clear. Yeah. You made it sound like there's fifty thousand people that need a heart in the United States, mm -hmm. but only three thousand are given every year. I mean, that's yep. that's a hard conversation to have if you're not one of the candidates that meet the criteria to get one of those. So, how does that whole Correct. process work? How do you get one? How do you not? Yeah, that's there's a great question. So the very first thing we've done, uh, I think, extremely well is we do a lot of outreach, and I'm going to start with outreach because. We take one of our nurses who's well-versed in transplant and LVADs, and we actually gave her a role where she is now teaching the local communities, uh, tra traveling to remote Montana, remote Idaho, remote Utah, Wyoming, Nevada, where they don't have programs like this. And they teach the local cardiologists and the local patients about heart failure. A lot of patients in these rural areas, once they're diagnosed, they think that's a death sentence, and it's not. And so these patients are then referred into us. We have a really good website. We have a lot of education materials, uh, both electronically, on paper. Um, in there's national support groups we refer them to. There's patient decision aids. So they look over should this is, is this right for me? Things we're looking at: one, the patient has uh, compliance. The patient takes their meds when they're told. They see their doctor when they're told. They are able to do follow-up. Two, they have to have insurance. Um, that's a big uh, issue. A lot of people think I'm I'm fine, I'm healthy, and then something bad happens, like a diagnosis of heart failure. Um, for example, you can get co uh, heart failure after COVID. You can get heart failure after strep, after having an infection. So making sure they have insurance. Um, all of the insurance plans, as well as Medicare and Medicaid, cover uh, transplant or LVAD. Um, so it's it's making sure they're well insured, so that they this this is a big procedure. This is um, 
half a million dollars in the end by the time it's all said and done of what it costs to go through this. So uh, making sure they have insurance. Uh, Three, we most of the time strongly, strongly recommend they have caregivers. That means that we have to find patients that have ties to their community, (laughs) whether they have really close friends, family members, spouses, sisters, um, aunts, uncles, relatives that can help them. It's a big deal to go through something like transplant or LVAD. Um, so they're going to need support. Um, it's also a big operation. We're gonna, you're not going to be able to drive right away after surgery. You're going to have to stay local in Salt Lake and be able to come up to clinic frequently so that you're until you're stable. Um, and then all of your other organs have to be working. A lot of problems with a transplant, things that rule patients out that our coordinators have to focus on is are these patients' other organs good? Are their kidneys still working? Are their lungs still working? Um, are, is their liver still okay? Um, are they smoking or doing drugs? Um, we're going to use that as a screening tool. We want patients that aren't going to destroy their bodies. Um, is their body weight okay? I know that seems really uh, a little bit judgmental, but uh, we actually take into BMI a consideration on how big the patient is. Patients that are very obese do not do well after a surgery like this. So that's something we look at. So the patient has to be caring for themselves. Um, There are things that we can do to help them get there. So I would say it's rare we have a patient come across our door that's absolutely perfect and has all these things in place. So we do a lot of education and working with the patient to get them the resources they need. Do they need a dietitian? Do they need a diabetes doc? Do they need um, a kidney doctor to assess and help with their kidney function? So we actually help coordinate a lot of that as well. Um, and making sure the patient has their best chance at survival. We actually actually use LVADs a lot, the the machines. We use that a lot as a screening tool. If we're not sure a patient's good for transplant, but they have most of these things in place or they're working towards stopping smoking and they're working towards losing weight, we actually will give them an LVAD to test them. We give them the machine. It's just something that we pull off the shelf. It's still very expensive and a very big surgery, but it's not a transplant. It's not a, a, a generous donor heart that just we can't make more of. We can't artificially create hearts on the back table. So, you know, we use LVADs as actually a screening tool. If the patient does well with their LVAD, then they could potentially do well with a heart transplant. Mm, wow. Maybe talk a little bit more about the time frame on that, you know, like how, how does it usually go as far as how long does it take for someone to get diagnosed with CHF to being placed on an LVAD or being put on a wait list for a heart transplant to getting it to recovering it? Like, what does that lifestyle usually look like? That's a great question. So when somebody's diagnosed with heart failure, whether it's from the genital, uh, something they did to themselves, they had a heart attack, um, maybe it's just unknown, they got a virus and suddenly have heart failure. If they immediately get care for their heart failure, immediately go see a doctor and take the medications they're supposed to, they can live years and years and tens of years in heart failure and be just fine and live at a ripe old age. So what people don't realize is heart failure is all on a spectrum. You can have mild to very severe. If you become one of my patients, which I take care of the severe patients with the advanced heart failure program, that's when you need LVADs and transplants. You either got sick really, really fast, very sick, or you have your condition has just progressed long enough to need our therapies. When somebody gets diagnosed with what we call stage three or four heart failure, they're looking at two to three years left of life. Wow. So we kind of give them a, mm, it, you're going to have a really rough next two to three years and it's a uh, 50% chance you're probably going to be dead of some condition related to your heart failure in the next two to three years. Those are the patients we then go, okay, it's time to start thinking about transplant and LVAD. Um, 
there's there's not a lot of turning it around. There there are some patients that recover, but not many. So we start talking about, okay, let's get your lifestyle in order. Let's make sure you're not smoking, your weight's the right way, you have caregivers, you're taking your medications, and let's start going down the pathway of transplant. For transplant, depending on their blood type, the size they are, and the antibodies in their blood will depend on how quickly they get an organ. Some patients may wait a year to two years to four years on the transplant wait list if they're just at home. Patients that get really sick and come into the hospital, they may wait weeks to months inside the hospital trying to get the transplant. So it just depends on many, many factors, but if an organ becomes available, if it's the right size and the right blood type for them. Um, LVAD's a little more lenient. We basically say if you, if it looks like you're going to wait a long time for transplant and you're not going to do well while you wait, which we can tell by a lot of factors related to their medical condition, we will suggest they go through LVAD surgery. And then when they get those, um, the surgery can be anywhere from two to three, two to four weeks in the hospital and then uh, one to three months recovery. And then they're back to living normal life and they can live a normal life like you and I do everything you and I can do except swim. The only thing they can't do. Um, They can travel, they can hike, they can go back to work um, while they wait for the transplant on an LVAD or while they live with their LVAD for the rest of their life, depending on what they choose. Um, transplant, same thing. Once once they get called up for transplant, it's a couple weeks in the hospital, you know, a few months recovery, and then they're back to normal life. You know, there's risks on no matter what treatment you do in medicine. And the goal is to give not only quantity of life, but quality of life. So a role as a, as a nurse coordinator in LVAD or in transplant is that we make sure that the patient not only is going to get quantity, but quality of life. As a reminder, students must be in good honor code standing to be admitted to, continue enrollment in, and graduate from Brigham Young University. In conjunction with this requirement, all enrolled continuing undergraduate and graduate students need to obtain a continuing student ecclesiastical endorsement for each new academic year. Students must have their endorsements completed and processed before registering for the fall semester or any semester after that. To avoid registration delays, Approvals should be submitted by April 15th. I mean, does this make you hopeful or does it make you kind of more sad about the current state of the heart transplant and medical device, medical assisted devices uh, world? Like, I mean, this sounds kind of depressing, but also sounds like hopeful. What, where do you fall on that spectrum? That is a great question. When I first started and I watched patients die, I decided I was a hospice nurse. (laughs) And it was hard for me because I thought I was coming to save lives. Um, What I've realized is that's a continuum. So yes, we help people die with dignity, but we also help people live who otherwise would already be dead. So I have seen both sides. And sometimes um, as a bedside nurse, all you see is bad because the only people in the hospital are sick, unless you went into labor and delivery, and then you might see non-sick patients. But everyone else in a hospital is sick, and they're there because they're sick. Um, they might be dying. They might not. In transplant, though, transplant and LVAD both, they, they give an opportunity to live. And, they, and yeah, there's some limitations, but they're living life, and they would otherwise be dead. And so we kind of, we kind of play a little bit um, of a savior role, of a, uh, an extended, we give uh, magical powers to you for a few more years of your life. Whether you get two years or 10 years or 15 years, it's because we gave 
we gave you a gift of life from some from a beautiful donor or or through a technology we are extending your life so that you can do your things so as a nurse i always ask our patients and i teach our nurses to do this as well ask them what their goals of care are what do they want to live for what is the reason for them to go through what we're about to put them through and are they willing do they have the grit to get through it if they don't really have a reason to live they will not do well with these types of procedures. We we really want to have somebody that has grit and has a desire to live. If they're, you know, 75, 80 years old and they've already lived their best life and they really don't really care if they live or die, we don't go down this pathway. They have to have a really strong goal to live in order to go through something like this. And we don't judge either way. We have we've taken patients and I've been very grateful that they chose the palliative hospice route and I've been really grateful when they chose the the fight route. It's kind of it's very similar to cancer. Cancer patients can choose to fight or they can choose to let go. And that's kind of where heart failure patients lie as well. Wow. But you've probably had some pretty hard conversations or at the very least your team members have had pretty hard conversations with patients. Yes, very much. I would I would I would have to say um going back to the whole team idea, I I'm very grateful that I went the pathway I did because I can't imagine trying to manage the team members that care for these really sick patients without having been there and done that myself. I think one of the best things a nurse that can do anytime, whether they stay on the unit, whether they go uh, to ER, whether they go work at a facility or whether they go into management like I did, you need to have walked the walk and talked the talk. You, you have to have been able to do what others have done in order to coach them to do the same. So every hard conversation my team has had, I promise I've had it. And so it helps me coach them. When my team members come in my office very discouraged because they lost their 10th patient in a row, um, I've been there, done that, and I can help them walk through that and and process some of the grief they go through. Wow. And I do want to pivot briefly now to talking a little bit more about LVADs. Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone has at least some idea about heart transplants in that world. We talk a lot about it in social media culture and, and just in our society in general, even though there's so few that actually end up getting another, a second heart. But LVAD's a lot more common and a lot of, uh, I know like Utah County has protocols for um, how to treat patients that have LVADs and things like that. But I mean, specifically in, in your role, I mean, I know you've done lots of publications with LVAD. What have you found about the technology that's changing and that's making them more viable and more, more useful as, as they've continued to develop and change over time? I am so glad you asked this because one of the reasons I chose the path I did was because of the LVAD coordinator that I met during my uh, my um, second year in nursing school, nursing school. I got to meet uh, one of the LVAD coordinators back in 2001 who worked in our University of Utah hospital. I was so amazed by her knowledge and her excitement over this really ugly, big, massive device that only saved a patient for another year to a year and a half. That's what I came into. I thought, oh my gosh, look at what we give them. And it failed in a year to a year and a half when I started. But I just thought it was so incredible. And so I fell in love with it. And what I have seen in my 20 years, almost 20 years of career, is that um, it has changed. The technology is incredible. We have gone from these huge pulsatile machines that weighed five pounds that they had to stay in the hospital with, that pumped out loud, that sounded like a bomb was in their chest, to these itty-bitty micro, like small devices sitting right inside the heart, spinning at 3,000 to 5,000 revolutions a minute, 
pulsing blood to their entire body and they can go home and do everything you and I can do. So I'm super in love with the idea of the technology. It's kind of my thing. I think if I wasn't a nurse, I'd be an engineer because I just think it's so cool how that happens. Um, I would rec- I, I would say that I think there's more to come. I think in the next five to five years, we're going to see it fully implantable. I think we're going to see the technology just soar through um, the roof and how it's going to work out. And so as a, as a nurse, that's what drove me to become an LVAD coordinator. So, so when, when I started, um, there were maybe 30 centers in the entire United States that did these devices. And it was very niche. And the patients, like I said, had really rough times. And then they eventually died in one to two years um, because the machines just weren't good. Um, now there are 186 centers in the United States that are certified. That's wow. still not that many when you think of how many hospitals there are. Yeah. So there are only two in all of Utah that can do these, um, Intermountain Healthcare and University of Utah. Um, there are a lot of hospitals that can care for these patients. Like you mentioned, uh, probably Utah Valley in, in Provo area has the ability to care for these patients, but there's only two hospitals that implant these. One of the reasons is you have to be one of the most experienced cardiac surgeons to put these things in. There's a very... Um, uh, it's very expensive surgery. The machine itself costs around $130,000. That's not charge. That's cost to the wow. hospital to put these things in. And the surgery is a big open heart surgery, um, like transplant is, but even more complicated. And so um, these centers also have to be regulated. So CMS, uh, Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, oversees all programs that do LVADs. So I had to build, when we, when we say I had to build a program, we had to write every protocol and guideline and procedure that went into this. We have a, an audit every single year by the regulatory body, whether it's Joint Commission or DMV, to make sure we're allowed to stay in business. We have to have proven certified physicians, cardiologists, nutritionists, um, social workers, palliative care nurse coordinators, outreach or um, outpatient clinics, inpatient units that are trained, cardiac surgeons that can put these things in, and that we then have to monitor our outcomes. We have to track certain goals. We have to have good survival. We have to have less infection. We have to have less stroke, less bleeding, um, better patient uh, satisfaction. They track our patient satisfaction. They track how well the patients do after surgery. Can they walk farther? Can they do more in life? So all of these things, this is not just this is not just a pacemaker that go don't have to think about it again. This this machine is is a life support device. This is we're actually putting people on extended life support and it's pumping in place of their heart. We also are regulated to the point where we have to teach all of the outlying communities. We are regulated to teach Provo and the EMS and the fire personnel in Provo how to care for these patients. That's part of the regulation. We have to share our knowledge with all of the communities where our patients go back. Um, I mentioned, I think, Idaho, Montana, uh, Wyoming, Nevada uh, do not have programs. They have not a single hospital in any of those states that can care for these patients. So not only do we support Utah, but IMC, Intermountain Healthcare, and University of Utah actually support all of the surrounding states as well. All of the patients come from surrounding states come to us for this care. Wow. I do want to ask you a little bit more about the protocols that you create. You're actually writing the protocols then? I mean, does that make you... I mean, I don't want to say smarter, but at least like a little more <laughs> informed than like the physicians that are installing these, because you have to essentially call the shots then, and you need to call and make the decisions before the decisions are even being considered. That way, physicians and right. surgeons will know what they need to do when they're installing these devices, right? Yep. 
yeah, so that's that's kind of a funny scenario. I never thought about it. Um, but yes, the nurse has to be just as smart as if not smarter than the physician on what the rules are. Um, now, we're not the technicians. You would never want my hands in your chest. But I can tell the doc, uh, I've read the manual, whether it's transplant or for LVAD a million times, I wrote most of it, um, using regulatory rules, using uh, the manufacturer's guidelines on how we are going to manage these patients. So when we sit in these multidisciplinary meetings, as when either whether I was a nurse coordinator or now as a manager, administrator, my job is to listen for and speak up if I hear something going off script or off protocol. Hey, I really want to do this on this type of patient. My brain has to be thinking, okay, is that written the way we're allowed to do that? Is that okay with the rules? Will we get paid for that? That's the administrative side you have to always think about, right? Mm -hmm. Does that insurance company allow me to do this? Um, are we going to get in trouble if we use this off-label? Because there is instances where we do things off-label in medicine. So we have to think through those processes. Are we protecting ourselves? Are we doing what's right for the patient? And are we following what we told CMS, Joint Commission, those people that we would do. And so um, it's been uh, really, really important. And I didn't realize in nursing school how critical my second year of English writing, not not the literature one where you write funny stories, but the one where you actually have to write research papers. Yeah. There's a lot of APA formatting and MLA formatting, and there's a lot of writing that goes into uh, being an administrator over a programmatic level to actually write protocols, write IRBs, write uh, letters to the FDA. <laughs> I've done all three. Wow. Um, um, write, write, uh, present PowerPoints and presentations to our administration of the hospital to get more or to get additional allowances, bring new technology. And I've sat in tech assessment committees where they determine if we're allowed to bring a new technology into the hospital. So all of those things have to be, you have to be a pretty decent writer. Um, I would not say I'm a public speaker by trade. That's not what comes naturally, but I, I have done enough of them where I can um, speak in public as well. That's, that's something I didn't think I'd have to do as a nurse, but definitely I do now. Um, so lots of cool opportunities, lots of ways to grow in. Um, for those that are more introverted, there's still a role in this for you. Some of my coordinators love to participate in the background. They just never want to be called on in the front and foreground, and I know that. So they help develop things, but they don't want to be the one presenting. So we just know our strengths and weaknesses on our team, and we allow those with their strengths to grow in their strengths, and those that don't want to speak up in front of people, they're still doing a ton of work in the background. Yeah, I bet there's a whole spectrum of what um, a team like yours has to end up doing. I, I do want to backtrack specifically something you did mention. Uh, you said that sometimes you have to like listen in and observe how these devices are being implanted and what, what, the, what the policies are. You're trying to balance if the patient, um, if, what, if what is going to be done is going to be in the patient's interest. Does that mean you're like, that you or someone in your team is observing a surgery and making sure that things are done properly or, um, or, 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 what, or how does that, how does that work? How does that like kind of patrolling or enforcement of these policies usually go? Um, I would say most of it's done before surgery. We, we trust that our surgeons know what they're <laughs> doing. Um, that said, when we bring in new technologies, I have gone to, when I was a coordinator, I've gone to the OR and pulled up the instructions while the surgeons in the OR, and we've all wow. of course read through the instructions. They've yeah. all had training, but yes, the the coordinator is a reference point, um, especially you, if you think about this. Patients with LVADs or these machines, they may end up in like GI surgery someday or ortho surgery. 
broke their leg. And the orthodoc has no idea what the LVAD is doing, but the, the coordinator is there controlling the LVAD. And so they're actually influencing the anesthesiologist and, and instructing them, hey, 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 watch, see that blood pressure? That's, that's a good blood pressure, that's a bad blood pressure for this patient. So our coordinators do have to learn to politically have really good and healthy critical conversations, crucial conversations with our surgeons and with our medical providers. So I would say um, we are really, you, you need to learn to read a room, you need to learn to read when it's time to speak and when it's time to shut your mouth. <laughs> yeah. and, and when it is time to speak up, just like a nurse would on the bedside, if you see something unsafe for a patient, you need to know the correct way on making your voice heard because you are ultimately as a nurse, the patient advocate. And so we still function as that in this role just at a much higher stage level. Um, again, our nurses, I mean, our providers and our surgeons, I am not saying they are not trained. They are extremely well-trained. We are just additional resources to them. Um, the, the, the call I just had a pause for a second ago was a physician calling me about an issue that I knew that he knew I knew on the regulatory piece that he didn't know. So it was our one of our lead doctors asking for help, basically, which is really yeah. cool to be able to be a resource to a physician that Sometimes we believe they're all-knowing, all-powerful, and what we really know is everyone knows their part, and everyone has their part to play, family or at work. Wow. Well, it sounds like you definitely have put your whole life and, and soul into your work. You're obviously very passionate about what you do. That's amazing. Yes. If you get burnt out and you stop being passionate about what you do, it's time to look elsewhere. <laughs> and I, I, that's actually really important for nurses. Don't just stay in a job because of the money or because... You think you have to. If you are burnt out, I'd much rather have a burnt out person come tell me I'm burnt out and I'll help them find where they need to be than continue to work in your job burnt out. It's miserable to work with somebody that's burned out and it's miserable as a patient to get care from someone that's burned out. So, so always reach out when you start to feel that burnout. We actually, I personally had my own resiliency call scheduled last week with the resiliency center here for my <laughs> own burnout. So I think, I think it's super important as a nurse to recognize that. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, really good thoughts. Really want to thank you so much, Aaron, for everything you've shared with us. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Aaron. This has been great. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for that interview, Ryan. Um, it really is like a miraculous thing that we have the technology to to do heart transplants. It, it truly is the healer's art. No, definitely. And Aaron Davis really is on the cutting edge of a lot of new technologies that make those types of surgeries possible. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed the Think Like a Nurse class and Charity sang a song she wrote about learning the healer's art. As we conclude this episode, I want to share a reflective writing and drawing from Maya Stevenson. She wrote, the greatest example of compassion is Jesus Christ, the master healer. My drawing shows a young nurse about to walk into a patient's room and the Savior's hand reaching out to comfort and strengthen them. I'm so thankful for the Savior's ability to soften my heart and fill it with compassion. In my opinion and experience, two of the greatest gifts of a nurse are to provide comfort and relief to their sisters and brothers in need. It is through the Savior that I receive strength and compassion for my patients, helping me to be the best nurse possible and represent the BYU College of Nursing. Wow, I love that. And special thanks to Maya for sharing her artwork with us. If you want to see it, head over to our Instagram account, The College Handoff, to check it out. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Don't forget to tune in next week. As you all know, we'll have a new episode for you next Tuesday. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. See you then. 